a blowout. Eighth inning, 10-3. Bases are loaded for Verlander, who waits out of the real He swings, and it's a high fly ball. Deep center field. It is gone. Home run. And a huge bat flip to celebrate. All right, Ben, start the show already. All right, and now joining us, our special guest, former GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers, one of the most winningest GMs in Dodgers history. He does it all, Ned Coletti. Ned, thank you so much for joining me, man. Hey, pleasure to be on with you. Great to Uh, be here. Of course. So one thing I want to ask you, and I had a really cool conversation last night, actually, with Tigers manager A.J. Hench about managing in October and how stressful that can be for managers. But one thing I want to ask you is from the GM side, from the front office side, you prepare your team all year long for October. So once October hits, how stressful is that for you as a GM of a team to just, all right, here we go, let's go in? You know, once you put the rosters in, I mean, all you can do is kind of sit back and watch and hope. And, and it, it's not easy. You know, if you had one of those little step counters, how many steps you took in a day, you'd probably <laughs> find most GMs about 20,000, 25,000, probably pacing up in the booth they're in uh, because you're kind of helpless. You know, you, you put the team together with a lot of different people. You got a lot of different emotions going on. Uh, and you, you're really kind of, you don't agonize pitch to pitch, but you almost agonize pitch to pitch. It's like the feeling, uh, you know, as as a player, I never used to get, super nervous once the game started but watching my brother out on the mound i was an absolute wreck because there's nothing i can do about it but as a player you're fine but i imagine you up in the up in the suite or wherever you're watching the game you're just a big ball of emotions not able to control anything anymore <laughs> oh yeah you know I, I would when things would get tough i'd walk to the back of the booth and the players knew it i mean the played uh, i mean i'm way up there they could they'd always look up and they go uh-oh He's not in a good mood right now, or he's feeling pretty good right now, depending on the situation, you know. My last two years as a GM, we finished off in St. Louis, and we lost the LCS in St. Louis, and we lost the division championship series in St. Louis. That was 13 and 14. And uh, the Cardinals put us in the same suite both years. Uh, I sat in the same seat both years, and I watched the same result both years. So (laughs) that's the last time I've been to St. Louis. I, seriously, are you not a very superstitious person? I feel like that next year you're going to switch up the seat or something or tell them, I need a new suite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know about superstition. You know, you, you do get into a routine, I think, as much as superstition. Uh, you know, it's sitting in the same place on the plane, same seat on the bus, yep. good or bad. You know, but uh, the bus, the plane, the suite had nothing to do with what was going on down <laughs> on the field. Uh, and that a big part of winning in October is deals – that are made throughout the season. Big deals that are made at the trade deadline. We saw one with the Dodgers this year with Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. And you were certainly a part of one of the biggest ones in Dodger history and perhaps the biggest in in Red Sox history with with Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford coming over to the Dodgers. Um, So what I want to ask you is talk about making those trades, but also when, was there ever a trade, a big blockbuster trade, that you thought you had done, but at the last second it's pulled from under you and it doesn't end, it didn't end up getting made? Oh, yeah. I'll take you back to the 08 season. Uh, and our team had competed, and uh, we were hanging in there. We were in and around 500 the middle of July. And I was talking to Chris Antonetti with Cleveland about CC Sabathia, Jamie Carroll, who could play all over the infield, and Casey Blake, obviously a solid, solid third baseman. 
Uh, Nomar Garcia Parra had been hurt at third base. Rafael Fercal was out with with back surgery. So I was trying to fix the left side of my infield and also add somebody to a really good rotation. And we got down to the last day. And you can probably look this up and find that Milwaukee acquired CC on a Monday. That Saturday, 24, 48 hours ahead of time, uh, I thought we had the makings of a deal for five uh-huh. prospects, one of which was a real big league player going to be in Carlos Santana. And... Um, Got down to a meeting with ownership uh, at in San Francisco at uh, AT&T Park, I think it was called back then. Uh, sat with Joe Torre and ownership and uh, uh, just couldn't get approval to do it. Whether it was financial, whatever it was, just could not get approval to do it. That was probably the biggest one that we, we I thought we had an opportunity to do and couldn't pull it off. And as it turned out, about 10 days later, I was able to get Casey Blake. Uh, and that cost us Carlos Santana and Cleveland paid all the salary of, of Casey. And then about five days, six days later, we made another big trade. This is the first big trade I was able to do with, with Boston. Theo was in charge back then. Mm-hmm. We acquired Manny Ramirez, who really was terrific for us the last two months of the 08 season and got us into the LCS. And in that case, Boston paid all of Manny's salary. So those were, were like about 10 days apart, losing CC probably because of finance. B, getting Casey Blake is a third of that deal that we tried to get. CC Sabathia ended up having a tremendous year for Milwaukee and going into the postseason. And then adding Manny to a team that was, was kind of close to winning, and we ended up beating the Cubs, uh, swept the Cubs in three, and then got beat by uh, uh, Philadelphia. You, Manny, so by are, the way. Yeah, Manny, you said is terrific. If there's a word for better than terrific, it was Manny when he came over. I, that was one of the best trade deadline acquisitions in, in the history of this sport, in my opinion. I mean, he came over and it became Manny Wood. He was, he was incredible. And, and you mentioned CC Sabathia, and he went on with the Brewers to be pretty good in, the, in that postseason and how you almost gave up five prospects for him. I want to talk to you about that, the, the whole – how do we handle what prospects we send? And, and you hear a lot about, at least from, from my perspective, the longer you have a guy under control, for example, CC wasn't under control for long, so you know five prospects at the time is a lot, but a guy like this year, you know, when, one that I think of that has, is under control for a little while, Joey Gallo, who's not just this year, you get him for next year, so maybe you send more prospects. How, how does that work? How do you figure out behind the scenes, all right, we're going to send them our number one prospect or, or okay, this is going to be our, our three and four prospect. How does that whole process work? Well, well, there's a, there's a handful of things you, you find yourself thinking about. One is really, where is your team at? Where is your big league team at? And do they have an opportunity to win if you do something? And I always think it's important that when you have a team that plays hard and competes, that somebody walks through that door at the end of July who they know. Who they know is a big league guy. Who they know as soon as they walk in, that's a difference maker. So you start there. What are you going to who are you looking at? That's a key thing. And also knowing your prospects. I think it's you have to really know your prospects. And some markets are different. Some markets are tougher to play on. I don't think just anybody could be a Yankee or a Red Sox or a Philly or a Dodger for that matter. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to leave any teams out, but those four to me are they've got a different way to them. The expectation is massive always. Some of the prospects that, that I traded away, and I'm sure that Andrew Friedman has traded away since, when you look at them, you know, they may be big league players, but are they going to be big league players where the lights are hot all the time? 
Yeah. It takes a special player to be able to do that. So you kind of look at that. And you're right. When you're going to acquire somebody that's going to be with you for more than a year, you got Trey Turner, uh, who the Dodgers acquired, who's got next year as well. You know, you're willing to give up a little more. You look at your club, you look at what you need, but you also look at, at that part of it. And yeah, it is tough to pay a lot when it's, it's quote, the rental player who's going to be there for two months and, and whatever the postseason turns into be. But you've got to be able to make that decision. And winning, you can never take it for granted. It is tough to do. So when you do have a chance to win, you got to get after it. And you know all the GMs, so you know how everybody interacts, and you know uh, you can you, know, you can always read anxiety in a voice. So you could read like, ah, you know, they're going to be patient with this. And, and some guys, you know, some guys will lead you down the lane. It's a little bit of BS, you know, and some guys <laughs> are just straightforward. Jimmy Hendry with the Cubby. He was always straightforward. Walt Jockety, Doug Melvin, guys like that, always straightforward. You knew right away if you could or you couldn't, or, or if they were coming to you on something, you knew that it wasn't going to be, you know, a, a, a folly that was going to lead to nowhere. But you got to think it through. But I think maybe the most important thing to know is where your team is at, where the health of your team is at, because some guys play hurt, and you know that they may not make it for the last eight weeks of a season and a postseason, and also – how are your prospects if they're highly rated by other organizations and you know them better than anybody? You got to make a move if you don't think they're going to be able to be competitive and also be a championship caliber player in the market you represent. So the biggest trade, I think, not I think, the biggest trade this year was Trey Turner and Max Scherzer coming over and the one and two prospects going over to the Nationals. And obviously we know the players Trey Turner and Max Scherzer are. are. They're all-star players. They're going to help the team on the field. What I, what I want to know from you is how much of a difference does that make to the, to the team when, when you acquire two huge players in the locker room? What does that show to your team when you bring in two guys like that? Does that make a difference more than just on the field? Oh, but without a doubt, you know, baseball is a tough sport. It's a day-to-day sport. You're on it every day. You know, you don't play once a week. You don't play two or three times a week. You're playing most of the time seven days a week. You got 162 games in 183 season. And think of where we came from, 60 games last year. You go from 60 to 162. That's like like running 110 meters and now you're running marathon. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different mental approach to it. So teams get tired. When you get to the end of July, guys are tired. Guys are looking for really a sign from the front office and ownership. Hey, you know what? We respect what you've done. We see where you're at. We're going to mortgage a little bit of the future to really fortify what we've got. And you know, when the Scherzer part of that deal was kind of rumored for a while, and he had a, he had a right to say where he was going to go. And you know, I, I couldn't see him ever picking a place better than L.A. So that to me was, okay, that's going to happen. But when I read that Trey Turner was also a part of it, I thought that is a massive, massive deal right there. And everybody in the clubhouse knows who these guys are. They just got done playing them in 219 in the, in the playoffs. So they knew him. Everybody knows Max Scherzer forever. And, and you know, you're talking about two star players, not guys that are just going to fill in, which is also something you need to do, especially when you get to when the August deadline was there. Those were kind of like players that you could fill in to really take care of something that you saw starting to fracture a little bit. Not easy to do sometimes. Yeah. But that July deadline, a lot of teams fortify themselves and really jolt that room in a good way by bringing in some star people. 
Well, so this is going to be a fun one. And, and we saw this year Max Scherzer ends up signing with the Dodgers. But there were rumors, Ned, that he was signing with the Padres. Max Scherzer was going to go to the Padres. And you just talked about some of the conversations that you have with other GMs. And you know by their tone on the phone how they're going to handle things. Are there games that are played behind the scenes, th things that you – tell GMs or that other GMs will feed you to, to feed to the media to get certain things said so that they can send better prospects or give up more. How much behind the scenes at this trade deadline do GMs play games with one another? Well, I, I think you, you use it for every advantage you can. And I think it does happen. You know, I, I was uh, you know in the game for a long time. It's my 40th year. So I had a lot of relationships established with some really good baseball writers, some of the best of all time. And we had become friends through, through 20, 30 years of, of uh, talking the game. And, and, you know, you know who you can trust. And they would always be calling from about the 20th of July on. They're always dialing me up looking for <laughs> some information. So, you know, I'd say, you know what? I, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you, but you're going to help me too. So you start calling around to your, the people you got on the inside to find out what's really going on. <laughs> I and, like you know, that. And I'll give, I'll give you a little bit on, on the side too, you know? And, and so, you know, that happened with me. And I'm not ashamed to say it. Hey, you're, you're trying to figure out what, what is really going on. It's interesting for me to read all the trade rumors and the trade rumor sites and this and that. How much is talked about and how little of it ever gets done. So you've got to kind of really kind of brush that to the side. You can't pay attention to rumor innuendo. That's why I, you know, I tried to get to the inside. I tried to get to the inside and find out what the decision makers were thinking. And if it was real, all I really needed to know is if the player I was pursuing, if they were acquirable, and if we had somewhat of a match, we could figure out if we could get there or not. But if it was all a fool's errand and you were just wasting your time, you know, you couldn't do it. Like when Theo calls me the morning with Manny Ramirez, that, that trade occurred the morning of the 31st. Wow. I had talked to Theo the night before. He was asking me about Andy LaRoche a third baseman, prospect third baseman. Yep. And so I'm wondering, you know, he's got Mike Lowell over there, I think, and Kevin Euclid. So, you know, he's got another team involved here at some point in time, right? So I'm watching, uh, you know, the game. We got a 7 o'clock game Pacific. On the, the bottom line scroll, there's, uh, you know, the, the Marlins and the Pirates and, and the Red Sox about to make this big deal with Jason Bay going to Boston and Manny Ramirez going to Florida and prospects going to Pittsburgh. So I'm on the phone with Theo, and I go, hey, congratulations. I see you're going to be able to move Manny, who had you know, caused a bit of a disturbance in the room there for a while. And, and I could just tell by his voice that it probably wasn't going to happen. So I went downstairs after the game to talk to Joe, Joe Torrey, and I said, hey, what would you think about it? And I brought him up today. We only had one other thing working for Greg Maddox, which we did with San Diego about two weeks into the August deadline. And I, and I talked to him. I said, what about Manny Ramirez? And Joe looked at me. He said, you're kidding me, Manny Ramirez? I says, look. I don't have it sitting on a plate. I don't know that this is ever going to happen, but we got to be prepared because tomorrow morning, this thing is going to just fly by. And he said, I coach him in the all-star games. You know, I manage against him. This guy could really help our club a little bit different, you know, but this guy is one of the best right-handed hitters we've ever seen. So if you got a shot, do it. So I went home for a couple hours. It's like final exams. You know I mean? You're sleeping like an hour, two hours or something. <laughs> you go home uh, and I, I get up, I go to sleep from about three to five. And I look at my cell phone and it's Theo and he says, call me right away. So I call him. I said, what's up? He goes, hey, uh, you know, I'm trying to move Manny. Um, he'll go to L.A. Uh, you have an interest. And I said, well, 
Yeah, of course I have an interest, but but first off, I don't have any money, so you're going to have to talk to your ownership <laughs> while, while I'm driving in to make sure that, that you guys are, are going to be cool with that. And uh, I said, but, you know, we, we were running out of time here. So, you know, this can't be a shopping expedition. He goes, it's not. He'll play there. I've got to move him, and I'll talk to the ownership about the money and this and that. And so off we went, got to the office and brought my ownership in, in, the, in the play with what was going to be. He got his guys together. We got Neil Huntington on the phone with, with the Pittsburgh ownership and worked this three-way deal out right at, right at the deadline. And it, it changed our franchise. little funny story to that. Mitch Poole, our clubhouse guy, the mm-hmm. home clubhouse guy at the time for Dodger Stadium, also the one that was instrumental in having Kirk Gibson tell Tommy that he was ready to, to hit in the 88 World Series. Yeah, yeah. The Boston the Boston clubhouse guy calls Mitch Poole, and he says, uh, let me give you Manny Ramirez's hat size and uh, and, uh, and all the rest of it. And, and Mitch Poole goes, get out of here. What, what are you talking about? Because we did it right at the deadline. And I had to call Andy <laughs> LaRoche, and I had to call Brian Morris, the two pitchers we sent before we let this let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. And so I would, you know, it's going to be announced maybe 45 minutes later. And Mitch pulls, almost hangs up on the Red Sox clubby guy, thinking that <laughs> that he's just pulling his leg, that this is just fallacy. This ain't really happening. And he goes, yeah, right, we're getting Manny Ramirez. Call me call me some other time. And he goes, no, hang on. We're getting Manny Ramirez. <laughs> so he put us on, he put him on holy call me. He goes, are we getting Manny Ramirez? I said, you bet we are. Just keep it down for a little while. That's incredible, and such is the story of Manny Ramirez coming to the Dodgers, which is one of the greatest trades in the history of of the Dodgers, really, which is incredible. Um, and and you mentioned money there for a little bit. I want to talk about 2012, Ned, when it's public knowledge that you were basically handed a blank check. A lot of money opened up and said, "Go spend it. Go get us some players. Go win us some some ball games." How stressful is how stressful was that time for you and, and how fun was that time? Talk about that period where you just had to, to go sign players and win ball games. Well, I, I'm an action oriented guy. I love I love the action of trying to make deals, trying to make your team better. And we had gone through a, a couple bad years, tough years, and we had to take it in the context of where the organization was too. It was uh, we had lost a, a few uh, fans. Our attendance was down. Ownership had changed on May 1st that year, and people were not happy with the previous ownership. Stan Caston, Mark Walter, Magic Johnson, Peter Goober, this group comes in, and now they're going to make a mark. They're in it to win it, and that's, that starts on May 1st. And I talked to Stan a few weeks before that, and he said, I want you to think about things that you thought about doing but could never afford to do. And we also had a TV deal, our, our local rights deal, coming up at the end of that season. So we had a lot of different things to try and manage. Always had admired Adrian Gonzalez, especially from the San Diego days where he just you know, pummeled it at, with us down in, yeah. in San Diego in a tough heart to hit home runs. He was an excellent hitter, big run producer. And so I had some interest in, in, in Adrian. And I, and I talked to, to Ben Charrington earlier in, in the year about Adrian, and he, he – was hands off at that point in time couldn't do anything with it so we just kind of kept kept in touch on that and i knew he wanted to move josh beckett and i knew that he wanted to move carl crawford so ownership and i continue to have discussions our ownership continue to have discussions about that and they love the idea of adding adrian gonzalez to it and they went they went to an owner's meeting and and they met with with the red sox ownership and they came back and they said look 
we know where you've been. And, and Mark Walter worked in, in Chicago, and that's where I'm from, he says. And he knew how I grew up. I grew up living in a remodel garage half my life and, and different things like that. So, you know, I was, you know, I was, I realized the value of money all the time. So, you know, he says, you know, we need to do this deal. We got this TV deal coming up. We got all these different things. We got a team that has played hard. Our team was in it. But, you know, we had kind of cobbled it together. Our payroll had gone down about 30 million uh, and it was from one year to the next. And now it started to rejuvenate. We had gotten uh, Victorino, Joe Blanton, Hanley Ramirez in the month of July. And now we were working towards August. So they come back from this meeting and they say, hey, we're ready to go. And, and don't worry about the money. And I was like, whoa, that's, I got to worry about the money. So we, we had these conversations and, and we went and we ended up doing this deal that also changed the franchise. It, it, yeah. it, enlivened, it enlivened Dodger Stadium again. I, I think, in my opinion, it, it showed the fan base that this ownership was real, that they were going to invest and that they were going to take a shot at it all the time. And, and they did. I think we got eliminated the day before the end of the season in the wild card in, in 12. Made a lot of trades. Sometimes it's a little bit unsettling to do too much at the deadline yeah. and then too much in August, which is when their Red Sox traded first. But um, we needed to do it. We needed to do it for a lot of reasons. Rejuvenated the fan base. TV deal comes up, and it turns out to be a, a very, very healthy financial deal for the organization. That trade probably, in the way the team played, may have had a little bit something to do with that, I'm thinking. So that's kind of the background to it. But a lot of different things were in play. Plus, it was August. So everybody had a clear waiver. Right. Not easy to do. Well, it really kind of changed the course of the Dodgers franchise and kind of got them to, to where they are at this point. One of the best teams in the league consistently over the last five years, the, the best team in baseball. And, and that kind of started it all. Um, Ned, when, when I look at the game today, I often wonder how much of a fingerprint the GM and the front office has on what we see happen on the field. And you've started to hear more and more about it. Mike Schilt just gets let go from the Cardinals manager. And, and basically what comes out is that he just wanted control of his own team. And the Cardinals didn't want that. They wanted to have it come down from the front office. And Dave Roberts said recently when Urias didn't start in a game in the postseason that it came from the top. It wasn't his decision. How much of that goes on? How much of the front office is controlling what happens on the field in today's game? Well, all I do is read it or hear about it like you do. So I don't know the detail. I don't know the the one-on-one the, the -on -one conversations or how prepared a manager is uh, with a lineup card sitting on his desk. I mean, we all hear stories. I don't know what, what is fact, what is fiction. I can tell you the way I did it. If, if I, you know, I, I felt my responsibility was to give the manager and the coaching staff my view. If I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have Joe Torre managing. If I had to tell Joe Torre what to do, <laughs> Joe Torre is a Hall of Fame manager. You know, it, it didn't work that way. And Dusty Baker, I was with him a long time in San Francisco, and and Felipe Alou, and then Grady Little, uh, Joe, and then Donnie Mattingly. You know, if if I had to tell them tell them explicitly what I needed them to do. I thought maybe I'd have the wrong person. They have a feel yeah. for the game. And, and I thought that it was always going to be respectful. It's my job to say, hey, this guy's swing's getting a little long. This guy's arm's looking a little tired. Release point is changing. Spin rate is changing. There's some things changing here. Be aware of this. But you've got, a, you've got the best feel. That's why I have you in the position, especially with, with Dusty and, and Felipe and Joe Torrey. That's why I got you guys in this position. And Brian Sabian, 
hired Dusty and Felipe. I don't want to make you know miss misspeak on that that piece of it, but intimately involved in the process. And they that's what they did, and they had feel for it because you can have an you can have a plan, but the plan isn't isn't necessarily going to be dictated when you've got a situation where it's pitch to pitch, right? And different things are going to happen, and maybe you've got somebody that you're playing that comes in, and maybe they had a tough day at home, or maybe something else is going on. And and they they're just not not there that day, or they're not feeling exactly right. It, it's tough to it's tough to script things in a sport because that's why people love to watch sport. It's not scripted. It's it's like every minute is going to have a new a new thing to it that you can't necessarily predict. So I, I left it to my managers to figure it out. It was my job and my staff's job to give them insight, to give them perspective, and to give them a longer view. But they were also in the dugout during the game. I, I've never been in a professional dugout during the game. So <laughs> I, I, let, I let them handle that, right or wrong. That's how I did it. <laughs> well, apparently it was it was right because that over a 10-year period, you were the winningest NL GM uh, over a 10-year stretch. So clearly it was working. And I know over that stretch there was a lot of winning times, uh, a lot of good things happened, a lot of probably fun memories. When you look back, on that time is there one celebration or memory that happened over that stretch of winning so many games that you look back on and that you you'll never forget one memory that you remember from those winning days well i'll probably have to give you two my first year was 06 the team i inherited in from the 05 season was 71 and 91. i come from the giants the giants don't want let me go peter mcgowan god bless him deceased now uh, he he, he talk, tried to talk me out of going to L.A. I, he wasn't going to be able to talk me out of going to L.A. as much as I loved it. <laughs> we end up go, coming up and tying San Diego for the division championship. So we're going to the postseason, and we did it in San Francisco. So a place that I had a, a, a great love for and affection for the people. When I got the chance to be a GM, my first year, we win. And we're going to the postseason, and we happen to do it in the, in the place I just left. And I can remember the bus pulling away from the corner there of Third and King, and they had that beautiful Willie May statue out there. And that plaza was loaded with Dodger fans. I mean, people climbing over Willie Mays and, and blue hats and, you know, the blue sweatshirts. And I thought, oh, boy, I hope Peter's not looking out his window because he's probably not going to be happy with this. <laughs> but that was a cool thing. And then the first time the Dodgers won a postseason series uh, since, I think, 1988 was uh, in 08. We played the team I grew up with, the team I, I started working with in my hometown team, the Cubs. They had won the most games in baseball. We swept them in three games in a division championship series in 08. And that was uh, those two games are probably the two I, I, I'm most fondest of and probably mean the most. That's awesome, Ned. Hey, well, thank you so much for the time. It, it was really awesome to, to pick the brain of one of the best to do it for the Dodgers that got the team to where they are to this point and talk a little bit about behind the scenes. So, Ned, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on all the previous success and continued success, and I appreciate you joining me. Ben, pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. You're very kind with your scouting report on me. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you.